Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Rusty Quill presents Enthusiasm. Hello everyone! Welcome to today's bit of break content to cover the gap between seasons 2 and 3 of Enthusiasm. While we're working hard on bringing you brand new episodes, have a listen to some never-before-heard bits that didn't even get to the Patreon. Enjoy the cutting room floor. I'll be honest, I love I love any 90s adaptation of classical literature into a teen movie. Ah, oh, clueless, right? <laughs> clueless. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> 
there's also an adaptation of Twelfth Night called She's the Man. Yeah, which is with Amanda Bynes. I, I think I think it's the worst of like that crop, but like any of them, they're they're all they're all they're all a great time. <laughs> right. Okay. I have been trying to persuade someone to watch that with me for some time now, with zero <laughs> success. Is it is it good? It's like, uh, yeah. Right. Like it's all right. It's, it's got some good. It's got some good laughs in it, and of all of them, it's the most like standard nineties teen movie. Mm. Well, I think it might actually be very early two thousands, but yeah. yeah so. th- but that's the vibe. Mm. It's really good as part of a marathon of those movies. Of those movies. Okay, but, but don't make it the first like three. Probably don't make it the first one. I think second is maybe the sweet spot. So you're like you okay. bring him in with Clueless. And then you're like, <laughs> she's the man. And they're like, oh, yeah, that was all right. And, and then, then you apologise for 10 things. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. I was going to ask if anyone has seen the Ophelia film that's Hamlet, no. but from Ophelia's point of view. No. no, I haven't. Is it good? Oh, it's on Netflix. I enjoyed it much more than I was expecting. And it basically, it's an alternative ending in which Ophelia faked her death. And went off to live on a farm instead. Nice. <laughs> All right. That sounds great. I think there's a video game from Ophelia's perspective as well, which I heard about recently, but oh, I really? think it's still super sad. So I'm kind of interested oh. to play it, but also not sure if I want to be super sad right now. <laughs> I've got a really fun choose your own adventure book where you can play as Ophelia and you can give her a happy ending if you choose the right decisions. It's pretty nice. Aww, that is nice. Mm. But yeah, I'd recommend the Ophelia film for just like a nice little reimagining mm. of things that I just found a lot more interesting, mm. I guess. I was mm. in an all-female production of Hamlet once, which was just, I think it's the long is it was so long it was you know how like <laughs> hamlet there's like three versions of hamlet and you can yeah. have different and basically imagine if you took all of them and decided that <laughs> you would do the sort of supercut of hamlet <laughs> which was just it was exhausting to be in every night we would we had two intervals and we would lose like at the first and then like a solid third at the second interval. Oh, no. It was endless in this huge echoey cold hall. All female cast, but like nothing was done with that. Like we weren't Mm. saying anything with it or like (laughs) reimagining stuff or changing stuff up or, or making any kind of comment. We were just a lot of female performers playing it. (laughs) And it was... which is why, although I know Hamlet is a great play, I can never like un- unmixedly love it ever again because there was just so much of it. I can't agree with you there, Imogen. The extended edition is the only way to enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> Director's cut. <laughs> Definitely. And I had to, I was like loads of different people in it. There was Fortin Brass at the end. He usually gets cut. And like a guard and like all of the, and a, always the churlish priest and all this kind of Hold stuff. Hold on, counterpoint. You can't cut Fortin Brass because otherwise there's just dead people forever. He's the one who comes in and is like, the play is over now, you can go home. Yeah, he's like, oh, what happened here, guys? Oh, I guess I'm not needed. Like, yeah, it's not, well, it's not the dramatic like, point. I guess I'll be king he's now. Like, he comes in at Lafayette in um, in Hamilton. Like, what did I miss? <laughs> um, Imagine just walk into a room and it's just piled full of corpses and you're like, 
Ah, well, my work here is done. <laughs> also, if he, do- if he doesn't turn up, you don't know that Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Yes, you do. That's the messenger, isn't it? I thought that was Fortinbras. No, 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 that's a messenger. Uh, news from England oh. comes too late to say that Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Yeah, because Fortinbras comes in as like, oh, everyone's dead. And then a, yeah. a messenger comes in as like, Rosencrantz oh, and Guildenstern are, are also dead. Yeah. <laughs> Just so you know, and Fortinbras like, okay. Are there any loose ends here to be attended to? No, no, every, everyone's dead, it turns out. No, no loose ends. I doesn't Fortinbras basically just say, all right, so I'll, I'll be king then, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, this quarry cries on havoc. Never mind. Um. <laughs> also, I love that in Hamlet, they, they have Hamlet kidnapped by pirates off screen. Yeah. That's yeah. really weird. <laughs> <laughs> like they make a whole video game out of that nowadays, and just lay in the plane. Nope, <laughs> off, off stage. He's kidnapped by pirates, but then he's fine. Yeah, no, a good editor would have just lose the pirates, William. Yeah, or, or, or put them in, <laughs> or lose the grave digger, and where the grave digger was, <laughs> more pirates. pirates. Mm. <laughs> oh, but we've we've got this skull. Yeah, for the pirates, man. Pirate yeah. skull. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do genuinely love that the pirates happen off screen, off off stage though. Like, <laughs> I just, I think it's like, I mean, it's obviously hilarious, but it's also it's also like so like thematically perfect. You know, this play about this bloke that doesn't do anything, and like the most exciting thing in the play isn't in the play. Yeah, no, you're, <laughs> just... you're absolutely right that it is entirely appropriate <laughs> that the only exciting thing in Hamlet. Doesn't actually occur. Yeah, for a while my Tumblr dashboard was full of people critiquing the dresses from Rain. Ah, yes. And and looking at them, I even I, who know nothing, who knows nothing about dresses at the time, I was like, that's that's just a modern dress with like an extra big bum attached to it. (laughs) Yeah, apparently they're some of them are wearing like Jimmy Choo, and people are saying, no, seriously, what? I do think this is a really important part of this question of what what is a period drama, though, because part of what a period drama is, is slapping contemporary aesthetics onto a story that is nominally taking place in the past, which means Mm -hmm. you go back and watch, you know, anything from the 80s and, you know, Jane Eyre has a perm and blue eyeshadow. (laughs) Uh. Nothing ages faster than anything that's supposed to be historical. Like if you watch Titanic and you think this, it's just so of its time, like more, <laughs> so much so than anything like that was made to be contemporary was. That wouldn't age in the same way. But these, yeah, it's so screamingly obvious when it was made. <laughs> oh, God, You can yeah. really like, because Les Mis, Les Miserables has been adapted so many times, you can really date how different societies <laughs> want to put their <laughs> message on something and every time a new adaptation comes out like yeah there are hundreds of people on tumblr being like yes you're right like the facial hair is wrong in this or that <laughs> dress is absolutely wrong or that dye wouldn't have been used in this time period <laughs> i've also learned that if you see someone in all black clothing pre I think it's oh pre-18th century or something like that, 18th, 19th century, then that's just like, nope, that would never have happened. Then it's not die fast. And I'm like, wow. <laughs> that This is really ruining your enjoyment, isn't it? Yeah. What would they wear if not all black? Or do they just wear 
neutral clothes or uh it would it all depends on your wealth a lot of what you see in terms of the mm. colors tells you about how wealthy a person is because something that was black would fade quickly so you it's it's also a a, a sign of great wealth because you'd have to re-dye it because the dye would just would go with washes very quickly and yeah and there are certain sh- it's like with paintings you know the whole things with, mm. with blue and gold for example in paintings you know that's that's a sign that that person could afford to pay for that pigment similarly and I, I can't remember which clothes but again this is the reason why we think of period clothing as being as it is because we see the clothes that have survived the ones that weren't worn day to day so we think of all mm. these sumptuous colours and, and jewelled bits and pieces and, and elaborate stuff yeah. whereas as far as we can tell, um, people were just wearing a lot of undyed stuff and a lot of quite rough and, and, and ready clothing that didn't change in fashion quite as quickly. You know, mm. you'd see, I don't know, peasant clothing from the Middle Ages it was the same for centuries. But whereas the, the, the noble, yeah, the noble fashions were changing quite quickly so that you can you yeah. can you can date the the nobles' clothing within sometimes within like five or ten years or something like that, depending on the size of the rough or whatever. But dating present clothing is just much harder because it's all like, yeah, it's it's homespun and it does its job, and then it falls apart. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> that reminds me of um, I saw some analysis once that was saying you realise that all the 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 dresses we have that are all in like very very small sizes mm-hmm. is because most people were a lot larger than that (laughs) and so their clothes would get reused and passed down and stuff until they fell apart Mm -hmm. but because no one could fit so there is there's like a a warped perception of that people from the past were all really thin but it's just that those are the clothes that have actually survived because no one could Mm -hmm. fit into them Mm -hmm. or or presumably kids clothes as well but they were shorter as well yeah they definitely were shorter yeah definitely well i look as somebody who's five foot two I really hold on to my fa- like my time travel fantasy that I could go back <laughs> to in the Middle Ages and be a giant. <laughs> like, who is that statuesque woman? I did I did a gig on the uh, Cutty Sark, and I was among mm. the people forever ducking. And and one of the other poets came up and said, "I'm the perfect size for this ship." And they just just walked <laughs> under the beams with with great elan, where everyone everyone's leaning to one side in order to be able to talk to each other. Was, yeah. Oh, have any of you been to the Tower of London? Yes. No. Yeah. No. Did either of you go up that really narrow stair that I think, oh, one of those famous rough wearing men used to go up there. It was like Thomas Wyatt or someone like that. But it was so, so small, the staircase. It made me feel so claustrophobic (laughs) because I was like, I feel like the, the castle is squeezing me. I can't imagine this being built nowadays for like anyone anyway that's all quite off topic but this is very interesting when people were reporting about thomas alexander duma who who was Mm. uh, the author of musketeer's father who Mm -hmm. was general and i think that raf will specifically like this there are loads of accounts of well there is an account of his curly hair being positively compared to Greek and Roman statues, mm-hmm. which in the 19th century was obviously 18th, 19th century. They had this uh-huh. like <laughs> classical thing. Yeah. Yeah. They loved uh, ancient Greece and Rome. And it in the same kind of conversation we were having earlier about like 
color scare quotes blindness and color mm. conscious casting when you actually go back and look there were loads of people of color and that they weren't just being discriminated against there were people in like there were bourgeois people there were yeah. people being like I guess slightly fetishized. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Obviously, that is also going to be the other the other swing. It's not just like positive, like purely positive, but to forget, like consciously, mm. to forget that there were like people being like, you can tell that he's going to be a great general, Alexander Dumas, the general. He's going to be a great general because he reminds us of these like Greek and Roman statues, which mm. we so adore. He was like, very tall and very pretty. There are lots of accounts of how he's, un- you know, like, like <laughs> very, very handsome. Um, they just went on about that a lot. But I, I did some reading into, and not 17th century, but a bit earlier, about when race was defined in Europe. Because there was a specific point where it started being, it's it's a propaganda thing. It was yeah. a way of justifying slavery, essentially, because yeah. after the the Black Death, it was it was the equivalent of Windrush. They basically went, "We have no one to work the fields. We are utterly screwed, labour wise. We need as many people who would like to come into Europe as possible." And there was a huge influx of of people from the African continent, and they were. And it was very much not a problem as far as we can tell. It just, you know, Europe needed people to work and so they did. And it was very smooth integration, if you want to use that phrase. It was later, it was um, Elizabethan times kind of thing. We're really getting into slave trading as as British nation, as a, a, a you know northern European continent. And, and Spain and the rest of it, that kind of thing, where there started to be this narrative about lesser races yeah. and all of that kind of shit. And the same stuff that then went through to the Victorian era and people started using Darwin's theories to kind of talk about evolution and, you know, white people being the pinnacle and all of this extremely uh, distasteful yes. stuff. But mostly race was kind of like this artificial structure in order to justify people's bad behaviour. Once I'd read that, that was a bit of a kind of a mind because I'd assumed that racism of the kind that we look at now we address in period dramas and the rest of it had been forever and it hadn't been. It had been artificially mm. introduced in the renaissance of all times which is supposed to be this, you know, blossoming of enlightenment and you know us being better at science and better <laughs> at humanity and actually we just went, no, let's be more greedy. And it, yeah. Be careful whenever someone tells you we are all so enlightened now. Oh, of course, <laughs> yes. <laughs> you might like Vikings. I, th- I think, Helen, we had a chat once where you brought up the fact that somebody gets out of something because they get, keep getting their hair cut or complaining about their hair being in, in their face. <laughs> <laughs> They're supposed to be being executed. And instead, this person keeps saying, Oh, okay, no. They do not get out of it, really. One of the Vikings is meant to be executed by a French king. And he says, well, can someone, you know, hold my hair? Because otherwise it'll get in the way of the axe. And then just as the axe is about to fall, the guy moves back and the guy who's holding his hair gets his hands cut off instead. Oh. And this is all seen as a mass, (laughs) a a great joke. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I, I, I I was thinking about that conversation afterwards. I just remember thinking... Because of how how strange it was potentially on television 
but how um, also the way that the stories are told, right? So almost all of this mythology is oral storytelling mm. and how you can imagine as well when you've got those things happening in threes, like, you know, if that happens where he gets someone to hold his hair and then it, the guy's arms get lopped off and you and you do it as an oral story. It's fantastic. You can do these kind yeah. of like triple things that happen and the way that it's told, I think, um, I, I just really love oral story storytelling, which is a, why I guess I got into podcasting. Yeah. It really does have an influence, I think, on also the way that the stories are told. Yeah. I do want to stress, however, that in, in the Vikings TV show, this guy only got away with that trick once. Oh, well, that's um. a shame. That is a shame. <laughs> Should have done it three times. But there was someone else um, who faked his death and they told the French that he'd converted to Christianity. So so could he be buried in their church? So they opened the gates and they took his coffin in. But it turned out he'd been faking being dead and he jumped out of his coffin <laughs> because he'd been sieging the city for a really long time. And this was the only way he figured he was getting in. Oh, nice. <laughs> and uh, that's how he attacked the city, by faking his own death and jumping out of his coffin just as everyone was like swinging incense over it. Oh, brilliant. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> Slight deviation there, maybe. but <laughs> No, I, I, I agree with you, Liz. I absolutely love oral storytelling. And I think when mm. you just said, oh, you know, the power of the myths come through in the way that it's told, I think it, it actually is also, as, as we've alluded to a couple of times, this is where kind of sometimes the changing nature of myths come into it as well, where, again, you know, as society moves on and changes, because it depends on who's telling the myths, right? So mm. uh, viewpoints change, people um, align themselves with the hero, um, or they kind of rewrite it as they're telling the story. And I think, yeah, I think that I love that part of it. And I mean, I come from a really oral storytelling tradition and culture. So that kind of mm. call and response and the, the kind of back and forth interactive storytelling i think i'm i'm really really interested in it yeah this isn't my favorite myth or story um but you actually reminded me of it when you said things that happen in threes and there is an yeah. irish mythology uh it's called the the morrigan i'm gonna butcher every pronunciation because i, I don't <laughs> speak irish um but it's basically the morrigan and it's three three warrior goddesses and irish mm -hmm. mythology First of all, Irish mythology has a heck of a lot of female warriors and, and, and goddesses, which I'm all for. Mm -hmm. But it's not like more Greek or Roman. They're not, you know, made of beauty and they're not mm. quite as petty and quite as vicious. They're actually guardians of people and the land. And so these three, they work as a triad and they tell people when they're about to be invaded mm. which i thought was always um, a really good way of helping them helping you know a tribe or, or a land prepare for war but it also kind of flies in the face of how women are often depicted in mythology which is sort of very weak and uh, left at the mercy of of, of the gods you brought up an interesting point earlier, which is that um, the lines between genres are blurred because a question I also wanted to talk about was on one of the previous Enthusiasm episodes, we were talking about sci-fi and how sci-fi and horror often blur together. And I feel like fantasy and horror also often blur together. So what would you say a difference? I mean, the obvious answer is horror intends to scare you and fantasy doesn't always have to. So maybe hmm. fear isn't, but fear is an integral part of lots and lots of books, not just horror books. So I don't know. I don't know. How do we define those two and separate them? 
Uh, yeah, I don't know. Cause horror is another one of those genres where it's kind of like the YA you're like, Oh, the tone and setting and atmosphere is kind of horrific. Mm. So this mm. just goes in the horror section. And even horror writers have a hard time defining their work as horror because, A, it was looked down upon for so long. Like, yeah. you look at Stephen King's interviews in the early 90s and he goes, no, I'm a thriller writer, right? Yeah. And it was super mm. shunned upon. Whereas now I think you see like a lot of exploration of horror as more of kind of like genrefied tragedy in some sense now, uh, sometimes. Ooh. And you see that in, I mean, the Rusty Quill shows like the Magnus Archives. Uh, we try and touch on it in the Town Whispers as well, where basically we're just trying to tackle real world kind of examples of like mental health issues or feeling like you're not belonging and all those are like horrific experiences, but they're not mm. traditionally horror. So when you kind of get into sci-fi, for me personally, just the idea of this vast expanse in space is horrific, right? Like I could just, I could just drift forever. Like we're plummeting through space. Like our planet is plummeting through space. It's terrifying. And then when you get into <laughs> fantasy, you know, you can get, what's a good example of a book that kind of dips over. So there's an author named Brom, kind of like Prince, just one name, Brom. And he does a take on um, Peter Pan, where he basically <gasps> just takes Peter Pan and he turns, don't know if it's 10 years old, so I'm not going to spoil it, but he takes like a horror take on Peter Pan. You can kind of see where like, oh yeah, this fantastical forest with all these colorful fungi, it's actually kind of terrifying because in your own world, you know the rules around everything. Like, I know this tree's not going to eat me. I know that's just like a knot in a hole where like some nuts are stored by a squirrel, but in a fantastical world, who's to say if you stick your hand in there that it's not going to bite it off or something, right? So, Well, that's a really interesting example, though, because Peter Pan, the original, is scary. Yeah. Real scary. It's, it's, not, <laughs> it's not really friendly, that's for sure. It's not. It's, it's not. <laughs> in the original, Peter Pan actively murders the Lost Boys if they get too old. Whoa. What? That's just good admin. <laughs> you just got to keep them boys lost. Yeah. If they grow up, they, maybe they'll find GPS or a map. And that's why Peter Pan must murder them. God, that's been glossed over a bit, hasn't it? That's... It has. It has. The original is so... Is this another Disneyfication issue with like all the yeah. Grimm's fairy tales? of like They're all grim and yeah. it's like the ugly sisters dance themselves to death in red hot shoes. But they were like, well, we... Probably can't put can't that in a that. cartoon. So. <laughs> yeah, there's so much murder in the original Peter Pan. Yeah. And it's definitely written as a children's book. Like yeah, yeah, the yeah. author keeps saying, ah, oh, yes, when your mother puts you to bed and things like this. Clean your teeth or she'll kill you. Well, it doesn't quite, it, it doesn't say that. But it also like, it. it <laughs> right. I'm so sorry. Like I read this really recently. But you know how in most Peter Pan adaptations, the kids fly out of the window, go to Neverland, and we spend all the rest of the time with them? Yeah. Hmm. In the book, we spend some time with their absolutely devastated parents who have come into the bedroom the next morning and found all of their kids missing. Mm. Wow. And the dad is so in despair that he decides to... I really hope I'm getting this right because it's going to sound so, so bizarre. <laughs> he gets into the dog's kennel and has the kennel. Because I'm a dog. <laughs> he gets in the kennel and, and he gets the kennel driven to his office every day. This sounds Because brilliant. he feels really bad that his children have disappeared. Sorry, I can't get out of the kennel because I'm a bad father and therefore an actual dog. Yeah. I, I want to yeah. read this. This sounds great. It's it's weird. It's a really weird book. And obviously, like, pretty racist, too. Oh. 
but for once the racism feels like the thin end of the wedge somehow why is the dad in a kennel it's hard to focus on the racism in this one instance because a man is in a kennel and no one will tell me why yeah. and there's so much child death and so much child death i honestly thought you were going to say captain hook was like you know freddy krueger or something that would be yeah. the, the horrific element not He's that in your dreams. the parents are kind of sat in the sending themselves off to the asylum while peter pan murders their children that's oh my gosh can i take a little left turn here quickly please oh yes i'm so sorry i just went on a complete peter pan tangent no no it's it's, to- it's totally cool it's totally cool so do you, do you folks remember in the early 90s like going and getting a vhs and it was just some random cartoon you'd never heard of and they were never disney but it'd be like happily ever after is an example of one that if people looked up on imdb and they grew up in the 90s they'd be like oh i vaguely remember this or like the secret of nim or fern gully yeah they're like all terrifying and all kind of fantastical different little worlds in in one shape or form and so yeah i i don't know that's just an interesting point you, you just said that, and I have a sense memory. Is it the magic roundabout? They had one f- thing of the magic roundabout, but like, is it who's who's the big springy wizard? Zebedee. Zebedee. Did he have an evil brother who like tempted people into a castle, and the castle was full of traps? What? What is this? What are you talking? <laughs> this feels about? like a, a fever dream I've had, but I've got a sudden terrified Tim at like six years old, and it's come on the television or something, and so you ne- you only see it once and then it never comes up again. Of like that weird cow from the Magic Roundabout trying to get through an evil castle, and there's blades. Is this an English thing? The Magic Roundabout. The Magic it is, Roundabout. It is. Yes, made oh, into a, a film. Made into a film that was better than it had any right to be. Oh, jeez. Look up the Magic Roundabout. You've got to go and see it right now. We should take a break from the podcast. Yeah, yeah, let's all go watch the Magic Roundabout, which I believe, does it have David Bowie in it? No, you're right. You're right. It was was a film, it looks like. So there was a modern film, which is fine. And then there is an old one. There's like an old, like the stop motion. And everything, when you're a kid, everything that's stop motion that isn't Wallace and Gromit, and actually Wallace and Gromit a bit as well, is absolutely terrifying. Like, it's all upsetting. Is Zebedee's evil twin called Z-Bad? That Z-Bad? Oh, God! Oh, no! Oh, it's in my eyes! Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely it. Crikey. Cool. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. That is a a British thing. Sorry, Cole. The Magic Roundabout. Like, that's... That name is just vague enough to intrigue me into watching it. It's the most British thing. Even the theme tune sounds creepy now I'm thinking about it. In fact, Cole, have you watched Spaced? Have I watched what? Spaced. Spaced. Your repeating of its name as if I've just said Clangdog implies to me that no, you haven't. You haven't watched no, it. No, 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 no. no. I was <laughs> no, gonna, no it's, I they they reference it in space, and I was hoping that was an in for Spaced. you, but no. The name. Hmm. Alas, I thought I had watched a lot of BBC, but uh, apparently space isn't BBC. Oh, yeah, it's okay. Channel Four. It's Channel Four. Oh, there, yeah, there it's Channel Four. Oh no, I've I've had my British card revoked because <laughs> I misidentified <laughs> the network Space was on. My uh, my knowledge ends at Coronation Street, apparently. Oh, why does it begin there? That's not a good question. Ah, channel to start. three. Why? Why? <laughs> Slightly returning to to what we were saying earlier about that whole horror, fantasy, and indeed sci-fi thing. I was just thinking, uh, like Frankenstein, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. That'd be mm. a weird one where it was done at a time when it was basically one of the first sci-fi novels. I'm sure you could have a very long argument on the internet about whether it was, but it's it's early in that genre. It's I suppose you wouldn't really call it a fantasy book, but it's definitely mm. a horror. 
Yes. Like mm-hmm. he he made a man and then that man killed his family. Like that's that's pretty horror-y. That's gothic horror, isn't it? I mean, the real horror is daddy issues. And yeah, really. <laughs> the real horror <laughs> is hug your kids, basically. Yeah, it's, it's like he was a terrible dad. He, he, ma- he dad. made he made a child in his laboratory and ran away. Yeah, to be fair. Of course he grew up for He did make his kid out of dead people, so it was pretty scary. <laughs> True. And gave it working reproductive parts. I was going to say, isn't it weird that stories like this actually comfort some people, like myself included, but the story of like Frankenstein, you know, coming to life and like that whole like journey he takes only to end up, you know, I really need to read the book again because I can't speak on it with any sort of authority. But the the movies sure give people a sense of comfort. It's just weird, you know, that uh, horror. I don't think it's weird at all. I find horror very comforting as a genre. Yeah. And and mm. that, and the whole book is all around like that. It's it's somebody who is potentially experiencing the same alienation from the rest of society, despite having done nothing wrong. Yeah, that, that, like that theme's going to be very much like that's going to be a real it me for a lot of people. Mm, it's crushingly sad. It's crushingly honestly. sad. Does yeah. he does he say make me a wife or I'll kill your family? Yeah, yeah that's yeah, that's that's, that's the end game. The reason that we know that his reproductive parts work is because uh, the. Yeah, Frankenstein the Doctor is is like, no, if I give him a wife, they might make more terrible dead children Whoa. somehow. Because remember when I gave him them testicles that I thought yeah. was important? <laughs> I'm getting a look from Larry that says move on. <laughs> <laughs> this is getting a bit off topic, but I, I feel yes, like so sorry. if Frankenstein's monster and Frankenstein's monster's wife have a baby, that is not a dead baby anymore. Like You can't you know, it's not no. going to come out covered That's in stitches. That's what I'm saying. But what if it was? Honestly, that, that, ah, oh, such a dickhead. Honestly. Anyway, I'm so sorry. You know what? <laughs> this podcast has come to the shocking conclusion that Dr. Frankenstein's a bad dude. <laughs> <laughs> and we do not support him and his endeavours. And we will write to the Shelley estate, you know, and we'll write on the letter, not for Percy, cross out. <laughs> Well, you know what? I think Mary Shelley also thought that Dr. Frankenstein was a bad dude. Yeah. She didn't write that book and think, I like this guy. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone should do this. This monster needs to chill out. I love this dog. (laughs) Right. Okay. Fantasy and horror. Pan's Labyrinth is an interesting genre bending. It's not not a book, but it's, it's, it's a film I can think of where it is half fantasy and half horror for me. Yeah, Shape of Water probably falls into that as well. Guillermo mm. del Toro is basically a genre unto himself at this stage. Mm. Yes, he is. Crimson Peak. Yes, and I suppose it does the whole... Because it takes place in the Spanish Civil War. So it's like, here's a here's an actual happened human world horror. Mm. Here's horrifying fantasy creatures such as Captain Eyehands. Yes. And they're basically, like, they are kind of together. Oh, that's an interesting one. Isn't it? Yeah. Oh, geez. Oh, okay. So that kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier with, like, comfort. Like, these, like, f- horrific stories are actually kind of comforting to people who mm. are feeling emotions and they're not yeah. having this touchstone point. And then, like, Guillermo del Toro kind of goes into this exploration of a kid who's dealing with, like, the violence and the uncertainty of, like, the Spanish Civil War. Mm. And she starts making... Well, you... I mean, it's a little ambiguous. I mean, you the kind of infer that it's happening, but yeah. it's also you're kind of left there thinking like, oh, this kid's creating this storybook for themselves, like quite a horrific storybook, but dealing with the uncertainty and the violence around her at all times. So, mm. hmm, interesting tie back. And it also con- 
contains one of the worst bits of body horror I've ever seen because it just has an incredibly realistic scene of when... Big old content warning for horrible violence. Um, but a, a, a man gets his face beaten in with a bottle. And in between yes. each strike, there's a new and interestingly broken nose that has been modelled. And it is a bad time. It is so yeah. like specific in its... like It's not that gory, but it's so specific in its violence that you're like, oh no, this is actually happening. And that really stuck with me for years. Yes. That's one of the scenes that I will always remember. More than the thing where, like, you know, a head grows legs and walks up a wall. You know, that's <laughs> gory. But I didn't find that as upsetting as that man having his nose broken with a bottle. I mean, it was. it's not just that his nose gets broken. Like, his whole head caves in. It does get, it does get pretty cavey. That's all from the cutting room floor for now. Take care of yourselves and each other, and we'll see you next week. Enthusiasm is a podcast distributed by Rusty Quill and licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Share-Alike 4.0 International License. It is directed by Helen Gould, produced by Lori Ann Davis, with executive producers Alexander J. Newell and April Sumner, and edited by Tessa Room and Catherine Ranella. Thanks for listening. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello all, it's Helen here. 
the voice of Azu from Rusty Quill Gaming, and the host and director of Enthusiasm. Today, I'm here to tell you about The Program. The Program audio series is a science fiction anthology podcast set in a world where money, state, and God are fused into a single entity. Every episode is a standalone story featuring ordinary people inhabiting this extraordinary world. And for them, it's not the future that is terrifying, but our present. The programme is sometimes funny, sometimes poignant, but it is always smart. Find out more about the programme at www.rustyquill.com or www.programaudioseries.com or search for The Programme Audio Series wherever you listen to your podcasts. Have fun and enjoy the episode.